Are you passionate about health and nutrition? Then check out the Nutrition Academy. They offer the most comprehensive, innovative, and transparent health and nutrition educational resource on the planet. They strive to separate health misinformation from reality. They give their students the resources and skill sets to think critically about what they read and learn. So you can use the power of research to make better decisions for yourself, your family, and the people you serve. The Nutrition Academy have kindly offered all listeners a discount for this course. So you are able to try it out for yourself with a saving of $50. Just use the code TNN50 at thenutrition.academy or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Dr. Damien Christoph to explore the gut immune connection. Damo and I discuss the immune system and the role of real food supplements and herbs, including olive leaf and andrographis. We also explore the role of both metabolic syndrome and low vitamin D in relation to our current pandemic, why waiting for a vaccine is not the only answer, and so much more. Hi, Damo, and welcome back to the show. Thank you, Steph. Hi, how are you going? I'm very well. It's been an interesting time, but I certainly wanted to open a discussion with you today about the link between our immune system and our gut and and so much more because not only because of what's going on in the world at the moment, but certainly to expand on the knowledge around our immune system. So let's start, I believe, um, you know, offline, we're certainly discussing some of the consumer research that's been conducted. So yeah, tell us more about what has been uncovered about our knowledge so far. Yeah, thanks, Steph. Well, we were having a little chat and um, there's a a company that manufactures or has the patent for a number of different strains of bacteria that both you and I use. Um, And I was meeting with them recently and they were just, you know, going through some of the research that they've done at a consumer level. Um, And they researched a small study, but they they researched a small group to try and understand whether or not this consumer group um, linked uh, gut health to the immune system. And whilst it seems like kind of logical for us, that is, yes, of course that is the case, um, 
100% of the respondents said that, yes, they knew that gut health was important and, yes, they knew that the immune system was important, um, but they didn't actually draw the link between a healthy gut and the immune system. And so they found that really interesting because that's their whole space which they play in. And then I found that really interesting too because that's the space that both you and I play in. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, like if the consumer doesn't quite yet understand, fully understand that the gut is a major contributor to the immune system, in terms of its health both ways, then we've got a long way to go, Steph. And so I thought we should have a bit of a chat about that. Yeah, I'm with you. And it's something that we've spoken about before, but obviously it's there's a big gap in, in knowledge. We've seen with the pandemic, with the panic buying, you know, I had a real concern about the types of food that people were stocking up on. I mean, first and yeah. foremost, people were going to look looking towards lots of refined foods and we'd forgotten about fruit and vegetables as we often do. And yeah, we certainly weren't thinking yeah. about what we needed to be eating to support our immune system. So absolutely. I think it's a really important conversation to have. Yeah, cool. Yeah, well, same. So, uh, obviously, everyone bought heaps of toilet paper, which we know, um, and everyone bought heaps of tissues, which we know, um, but then everyone bought a whole lot of packaged food, so frozen dinners, uh, frozen, you know, veggies, frozen pommesettes. Is that how you say them? I think that's what they are, those little potato things, <laughs> what are, potato gems, um, fish fingers, mm-hmm. pies, sausage rolls, ice creams. The only healthy thing that I saw missing from the freezer section was blueberries. Um, everything else was still there. Um, and so I was kind of, I was, you know, I, I too was despondent because all the fresh stuff was still there. Like everything fresh was still there. But everything processed, pasta, pasta sauces, um, and so on and so forth, you know, all of that stuff was missing. Like that was all gone. And as soon as it came out, it ran off the shelves. Like it was like, oh, my gosh, the world's coming to an end. I better stock up on tin tuna. And so that, that was what was going on. So uh, fortunately, uh, the silliness has ended um, and people have kind of come to their senses. But I still do notice quite a lot of fresh stuff still on the shelves. Mm. Yep, I agree. Certainly there were all the limits on how many packets of every single frozen food you couldn't buy because people were really getting carried away. And I think it's important to to have a look at the data when we understand who's at risk for COVID-19. So initially there was this pretty much um, single conversation about it impacting, one, the elderly and those that are immune suppressed. And that's very fair and very true. And then we started seeing a lot of younger people either getting sick or even unfortunately dying from COVID-19. And we, you know, we're obviously then seeing a lot more fear because it wasn't just impacting the elderly and those that were um, quote unquote sick. But what we do see in the literature is that the biggest common denominator that's not being discussed is actually insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome. And these comorbidities are proving to have a huge influence on our risk for COVID and certainly um, whether we recover or whether we go on to get quite ill. And I think it's, it's something that needs to be discussed because whilst it's very important that you know, we are across what's going on around, you know, whether whether there will be a vaccine and we'll talk about this today, we've got to look at what we can control. And if we control what we eat, A, we won't have insulin resistance and we certainly won't have a metabolic syndrome. 
Um, but you know, that starts with the food that we eat. And, you know, if you do have insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, it's actually quite easy to reverse if you're willing to make the changes that got you there in the first place. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's great that you put it that way too, because the changes from what got you there in the first place could be different for individuals, for different people. And, you know, there's a whole lot of chat around that. And obviously there's some models that say that it's saturated fat, some models that say there's carbohydrates, some models that say that it's excessive protein. And so that means that everyone is going to be individual. And that's why it's really important that you seek the help of somebody like Steph. I'm just giving you a little plug here, Steph. <laughs> seek the help of somebody like Steph who can actually analyze your previous behavior and then set you up with a more appropriate behavior moving forward. So um, whilst it's easy for people just to say, oh, this is the cause of syndrome X or metabolic syndrome X and this is the reason why you've got prediabetes or this is the reason why you've got polycystic ovarian syndrome or this is the reason why you're now have got centripetal obesity and then blanket it. If you, if you speak to somebody who's qualified in the space, they can actually give you the right and most appropriate program. So, um, and, and all of those diseases that I just wrote it off are all the same. They're just mm-hmm. different symptoms. Yeah, you're right. And they can come from a different cause, but certainly the research that I'll link in the show notes is about really as simple as blood glucose control because it it definitely starts there. And obviously when that is um, going the wrong way, then obviously over a longer period of time is where it starts to look like insulin resistance, metabolic disease. And, And so, yeah, how do we fix that? Well, it starts with real food and it's a conversation that we've had 14 billion times, but we're still seeing Western <laughs> cultures falling into the trap of convenience and not making time to acknowledge that, you know, one of the biggest decisions they make is what goes on their plate and certainly fresh food needs to be a huge priority. Absolutely, absolutely. We have had this discussion two times the amount of people that actually live <laughs> on the planet. You're right, 14 billion times. I love it. I love it. I love it. So let's go back to the immune system just uh, for a little bit of a chat. I think that's really important. We'll just finish, you know, I suppose polish that off and then we'll go into all the other bits and pieces. Mm. Um, What was interesting that came out of this research was that people didn't realise that, and and this is a number that gets thrown around a lot, um, that 70 to 80% of your immune system exists in your gut. Now, I just want to qualify that that number because it's 70 to 80% of your lymphatic system resides in your gut. Now, Somewhere along the line, that's been extrapolated to mean immune system, but it's actually your lymphatic system, which is part of your immune system. So, excuse me, as I regurgitate a little bit of water. Um, <laughs> I, I could feel this kind of rumbling coming up. I think I've been swallowing air while I've been talking. And, uh, and I was like, oh, am I going to burp mid-sentence here? Or can I just can I just push on? And I couldn't. So, I'm just explaining myself. So, anyway, so... Um, your GALT, your gastrointestinal system associated lymphoid tissue, uh, is in and around your gut. Um, and in that space, in that GALT, GALT, uh, that uh, houses 70 to 80% of all of the lymphatic system. So there's other parts of your immune system or other parts of your body that house lymphatic uh, glands. And we're talking about tonsils, adenoids, um, appendix and other glands that are within your body, like the ones under your arms and the ones that are under your uh, chin, so your submandibular glands, um, the ones that are in your groin. So there's other areas of, you know, large quantities of lymph, but 70 to 80% of all of your lymph actually resides in your GALT. Now, the reason why that's important is because when your body is presented with um, 
items that aren't self, that aren't you, um, or your body thinks that something is not self um, and it's, it amounts to a response or an attack, uh, then this is where things go wrong. And a large part of the insult actually occurs in the gastrointestinal system, and this is your immune system. And at the same time, um, histamine, for example, which is a, a, white, a, 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 a chemical that comes out of a white blood cell called a mast cell, um, that is a, as a result of a response to the mucous membrane being um, introduced to something that's not self that your body doesn't like. So that'd be an allergic response. And so your probiotics and good healthy bacteria in your body and good healthy food that fuels the bacteria govern the immune response in the gut. That's where I wanted to go with that. Did yeah. I lose you there, Steph? Because no. if I lost you, then I've lost everybody else. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it's really important to explain that because, yes, we do hear the um, that statement being rattled off quite a lot, myself included. So just really understanding that is the, the focus. And so, yeah, I totally agree. We've got to really look at how we look after our immune system and what the first step should be. You know, I think... In the West, we're very much like a pill for an ill. And so I think we're used to being saved. We're used to being saved by maybe Big Pharma or we're used to, you know, in this case, waiting for a vaccine like we have in history for other, you know, conditions. And whilst all of that can be important, we have to take back control. We have to really look after ourselves as that, point that first point so that we can you know start to move away from some of the fear-based information that we're seeing online and really understand that it does start with our health and certainly our immune system needs to be priority number one absolutely absolutely it's it's so true the thing to remember i suppose is for everybody you know listening to this call and anybody that you share this with is that by the time something presents as a symptom the there's been a problem there for quite some time. So in the old model, let's call it the old model, the Western model, um, or what some people might say is modern medicine or some people might say is um, mainstream medicine, that I would consider to be the old model now because mm. the greater understanding is that the body acts as a unit, not as individual machines or individual parts. So in the old model, it used to be, well, if something is dysfunctional, let's fix that part. If we can't fix it with drugs, let's remove it. Now, most people reject it these days. And so now what we've got to look for is pre or subclinical symptoms um, of a dysfunction before it becomes a disease. And, and this is really important. So let's say, for example, you're, you're getting some mucus running down the back of your throat every time you eat a meal. Well, that would indicate to me and to Steph that you're eating something that's probably not right. Now, you might go, oh, but it's just avocado and you know lettuce and... Um, tomatoes and some boccaccini cheese with some basil leaves and some you know boiled chicken and some olive oil on top of that you might just say that but that still could be there could be something in there that might be you know causing a problem now it's unlikely that would cause a problem but if it did cause a problem that should be investigated it might be that you're having peanut butter sandwiches or white bread with manufactured highly processed peanut butter with some nutalex for example uh, because you're trying to be dairy free and that there could be a big problem for you or it could be that you're just chowing down an ice cream every night when you're watching younger 
um, trying to relive your younger days or something like that. So you've got to try and understand what it is are your triggers, but your early warning signs are there and you just need to understand what they are. So think about what's happening in the roof of your mouth or at the back of your throat when you're eating and then think about how that makes your tummy feel and then what happens the next day when you move all that out. Um, is it a good movement, etc., etc. So these are things that you are being told by your body that you need to be aware of. Mm. Yeah, because you don't just wake up one day with metabolic syndrome or no. you don't just wake up one day with cardiovascular disease and we know these are the comorbidities that are proving to be most problematic when it comes to exacerbating the infection or increasing your risk. Like that's a process that for many people happens over decades and um, yeah. it's pretty hard to ignore but we do because of that old model like you said and certainly putting um, our trust or the trust of our health only in someone else and not in ourselves. So, yeah, there should be lots of warnings along the way. There should be lots of signs and symptoms and an appreciation that something needs to change. And yeah. metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease have a lot of similarities if we think about the inflammatory nature and why we're seeing these conditions so prevalent in 2020 for a lot of people as a result of, you know, the food pyramid and the incorrect guidance that we followed for most of our life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So true. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So I suppose then, um, you know, a next step of that and just, uh, you know, considering why we call uh, medicine the old model, it, it was a very reactive reductionist kind of model in that symptoms would appear, um, in, you know, if we're using metabolic syndrome X or cardiovascular disease, we might say, well, um, cardiovascular disease might be high blood pressure or cholesterol um, and or a heart attack. You know, that's kind of your three signs and symptoms of, you know, cardiovascular disease. Uh, for um, metabolic syndrome X, it might have been a slight raise in glucose or it might have been some central pedal obesity or weight gain in around the girth, the belly button area. Uh, for girls, it might have been some back fat. Um, you know, there, there's there's different signs and symptoms, but really it's not until the disease was full-blown that any kind of intervention took place. So um, medication would have been given um, in an attempt to thwart any further progression. Um, in the case of metabolic syndrome X, there's really only one drug that they really use these days, uh, which is metformin, um, and that's contentious at best um, with, you know, I don't know about you, Steph, but I call it kind of shady science around that. I don't, I don't think it's that good. Um, and and then with regards to cardiovascular disease, you're looking at cholesterol-lowering drugs, which we know um, have been shown to increase the risk of heart attack anyway. Uh, and and so you kind of go, well, why would I do that? Or blood pressure-lowering drugs, which will make you tired. Um, and so they're not fixes. So we're going to try and work out if we're going to use the new model of healthcare, which is a preventative model. Um, you can either go down a preventative drug route, which is just, you know, the old model flipped on its head, um, or you move down a preventative model, which is a lifestyle model, which is what Steph and I are talking about. And so, um, and, and that's my preference. That's where I'd like to, you know, head because that's something that you can control. And if you're in control of your health, then you're in control of your destiny, whereas otherwise you're in control your drug companies or medicine is in control of your destiny and your health. And, and if you give sanctity away from, you know, to somebody else of your health, 
um, you're powerless and, and you just don't want that. Yeah, and so I think it is worthwhile discussing the timeline to the coronavirus or rather the COVID-19 vaccine. It is a really controversial topic, so I'm really conscious of that. And um, Me too. it's not something that I um, want to create a storm about, but I do see a lot of people, quote-unquote, waiting for this vaccine, like all of their hopes are reliant on the facts that on the fact that we might have a solution in 18 months and whilst it's great that there's you know 100 different teams around the world that are testing and and on essentially in the race for this two billion dollar vaccine what would happen if there was never one found a rhetorical question because there are experts saying at the moment that it's proving to be a little bit more difficult Um, We do have historical examples like, you know, one, we don't have a vaccine for the common cold. Um, More recently in 2003 when we had a SARS outbreak, so the severe acute respiratory syndrome outbreak, a vaccine was never developed but the virus burnt out and was no longer an issue. So, you know, we do have more recent um, examples where it's not always possible. So I think we have to keep that in mind. Like we can't just rest on our laurels and and hope that, you know, Bill Gates is going to give us a solution when it may not be possible. <laughs> what would we do then? Oh, no, that's so true. That's that's a great point, Steph. Um, and, you know, going back to that SARS uh, vaccine and the, and the um, that it was never found and then also that the virus kind of burned out, mm. we, we could find that with this particular virus too, which they're calling SARS-2, mm. um, could, it, it could be that it also burns out or it mutates to be something else. And, you know, the quest to find the vaccine for this may arrive too late. So these are the things that we think you should be doing to keep your immune system um, poised for any kind of infection, not just a, you know a coronavirus, um, but also a, a rhinovirus, you know, like a cold, um, and also um, you know other kinds of infections that might take place. You know, it could be a bacterial infection of the upper respiratory system or a, a lung infection that's bacterial. So, if you keep your immune system good then you're better prepared to be able to fight them more successfully, these infections, than waiting for someone else to come and be your saviour. And that's what we're kind of saying. Yeah, absolutely. We can't rush these things to market. They, they, they need to be developed over a period of time. They need to be tested. There needs to be ideally clinical trials. So really that takes longer than 18 months. So we can't forget about that. Um, I'm actually reading a book called The Vaccine Race at the moment, which I'm finding really fascinating. It's not SARS-related, but it is um, quite an interesting historical conversation around what's happened in the past where vaccines were rushed to market. So there has been examples in the 60s where, um, you know, that, that did happen and people were quite sick and there were fatalities as a result. So whilst oh, I think, right. again, really? yes, yes, um, I believe it was for rubella. I'll have to go back and check that. Oh, but, um, it was too. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. Yeah. That's right. And so that that was all rushed and, um, you know, every single person involved in that saga lost their job. And so we just need to, yeah, really take our time. 
um, which, which I hope will happen in time now that we're seeing that perhaps there is already a diluted potency because, like you said, yeah. that's what happened in 2003 um, and it's being mapped. So um, COVID-19 is being mapped at the moment and it is potentially looking like its virulency is decreasing. So in time we may see that it just looks like another example of 2003. Yeah. Which would be great, wouldn't it be mm. great? Um, but that's a great reminder too that the human being is incredibly strong. So, mm. you know, keep that in mind. So, Steph, what are the things uh, that you would say people could do to uh, improve the health of their gut-based immune system? Mm. Yeah, well, I think certainly fresh food is a big one. I mean, I'm probably preaching to the choir and repeating myself, but it, it does really start with obviously a, a predominantly plant-based diet. So making sure that we're having a lot of fresh um, fruit and vegetables and from a vitamin C point of view, focusing on you know broccoli and capsicum and our citrus fruit and our berries. And so probably people are already doing that. But again, um, acknowledging those foundations i think and, and looking for how you can get those foods in every day would be my first step sure so why um i'm obviously i'm, I'm just going to keep asking you questions and then you can flip it and ask me questions sure. too if you like but with regards to fruits and vegetables why are fruits and vegetables important because obviously people know that they're important um but why are they important what's in them that make them you know special yeah, well, specifically, we were talking about containing natural vitamin C, which is going to support your um, innate and your adaptive immune response. But when we link that further to looking at the microbiome, well, these foods are fibre. And all of the research around that first point of call for a healthy and robust microbiome isn't a magic pill or a potion. It comes back to dietary fiber intake. And so in Australia, we're really used to relying on more refined carbohydrates like breads and cereals and muesli bars for our fiber. And they're going to be quite nutrient poor because they have a high degree of human interference. So plant and obviously fruit-based fiber is the best thing that we could be doing to create this robust microbiome, but also to feed the anti-inflammatory microbes rather than the pro-inflammatory microbes, which are fed by sugar and even too much saturated fat or too much protein. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the other thing I'll, I'll mention there too, Steph, if you don't mind, is that the chemicals uh, that make up the colours of these foods, uh, which are known as proanthocyanidins or... Um, or carotenoids, or, or oh, was polyphenols. That was the one. Thank you. Uh, so these these chemicals um, act as signalers uh, or information packets to our uh, own DNA and our gastrointestinal system to behave in a particular way. And so you know they signal our body to do stuff. And it's important to understand that the more of that information that we get, the better. Because as our let's let's take for example a virus. A virus comes into your body with a set of instructions uh, in its own DNA um, that when it attaches to your cell's DNA, it takes over your DNA and then starts to manufacture proteins according to the virus's instruction book. Mm -hmm. So it uses your cells to manufacture. Like it basically, it's like, yeah, it's easy. I mean, easy to think about a virus in terms of what's happening in your computer. Um, 
if you get a virus in your computer, it starts to make your computer behave badly. It's the same as getting a virus in your body. It makes your cells behave badly. And the thing that stops it are kind of like antiviruses or, or sets of instructions to ignore stuff. And that's what these colorful foods do. They provide sets of instructions to help our cells behave more appropriately. So whether it's cell death, uh, which is apoptosis, or whether it's cell replication, or whether it's uh, repair, or whatever it is, that's, that comes from our food. So we want lots of that information coming from good quality food because the dead food, the, the stuff that's been highly processed, doesn't contain those instructions. So then we rely on the instruction manuals that are in our DNA already um, to, to transcribe. But if they're being taken over, uh, by viruses or poorly behaving cells within the body, let's say cancer, then we will start to have bigger and badder issues. So you want to have a lot more of this healthy food, good quality stuff with lots of colours to provide instructions for the way in which your body should be you know, working. Yeah, so well said. I'm a big fan of polyphenols. I mean, they reduce like the inflammatory gene expression, um, combat metabolic syndrome, which is what we've been talking about, obviously. They're also um, incredible foods to help support our bifidobacterium strains. So going back to those beneficial sort of transient microbes that digest our fiber, um, but also produce vitamins and um, certainly um, low counts are linked to many chronic diseases. So, yeah, the color is important. So not only berries, which are the obvious ones, um, but even things like, um, you know, black olives, um, nectarines, Yum. red onions, Yum. asparagus, cool. I think um, green tea, black tea, artichokes. There's so many beautiful, colorful foods that are going to be, you know, on our plate already, but certainly that we can increase our intake of to make sure that we are getting a really high dietary intake of polyphenols. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. And then obviously fiber being super important, um, different types of fiber, uh, are really, you know, it, a broad range of different types of fibers are really important for the microbiome, for our gastrointestinal health, and for the formation of our stools. So, in the absence of fiber, um, our stools are poorly formed. And uh, and if that does take place, if our if our stools are poorly formed, we run the risk of increasing inflammatory markers. We run the risk of um, cell damage, and we run the risk of um, malabsorption and so we want to make sure that we've got fiber to slow transit time down and in some cases speed transit time up um, to just make sure that our gastrointestinal system has all of the opportunity to absorb all of the nutrients that we supply it through our food so that's also really important mm. yeah exactly so eat more plants eat more fruit that's step yes. one <laughs> yes for sure and also like let's t just quickly talk about um you know, with regards to plants, we often talk about uh, resistant starch. Mm -hmm. So what's, why is resistant starch important with, in this regard, Steph? Yeah, so, I mean, it's incredible when we look at the digestive path of a resistant starch in that it's essentially resistant to digestion until the large intestine where it can then be accessed by our beneficial microbes as a fuel source. So, again, encouraging the growth of the beneficial species of bacteria, the anti-inflammatory species that basically do form the bulk of our immune system. So they need food to stay alive and obviously the right kind of food, just like humans, 
can either determine whether they thrive, whether they can become more pro-inflammatory in terms of the metabolites that they release. So we do need resistant starch, which can be from vegetables like the cooked and cooled sweet potato or potato. Um, certainly can be found in, in grains like your white or basmati rice, even oats that have been um, pre-cooked. Lots of different examples of resistant starch, but um, I, of course, prefer the, you know, the vegetable-based options but, you know, what I ultimately want is for everyone to be making sure they are including some resistant starch, if not daily, then at least, you know, three to four times a week. Yeah, great, great tips, great points there. Um, appropriate proteins are really important too, aren't they, Stefan? So you could go down and get your pie from the local 7-Eleven and scoop out all the meat and eat that. Um, that's one way of getting your protein, but there's way better ways to get quality proteins. And, of course, fish is important, chickens is important lamb kangaroo beef like all of these different you know types of protein are really important uh, these are animal based proteins are there many plant based proteins per se that you would say are really really important yeah well, i think the legumes in terms of a category are often what's forgotten about so obviously they're fiber they do have a carbohydrate but we see them as being a protein certainly for our more plant-based um you know clients and listeners they they are so incredible for the microbiome like every single person who tests their gut microbiome is probably going to be then told to eat more legumes and you know yes there can be that whole digestive conversation because they're not always um digested and absorbed well by everyone but if you fix your gut then you should have uh, you know a tolerance to an upper limit of legumes so whether it is that you start with a small amount of chickpeas or lentils or black beans and you prepare them well so rather than maybe just going for a can that you buy the real deal and soak them overnight um yeah yeah they're such they're such such great you know, protein, but again, that fiber is going to be so important for the microbiome. Yeah, totally, totally. Two things there. I'm up to about three lentils. I think that's what I can handle at the moment. So <laughs> really? I'm, getting, I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm getting there. Uh, no, but the, but Dave, the other thing is... testing. Uh, <laughs> I know, no, I'm joking. <laughs> Far out. Could buy up a balloon with some lentils. Now, the other thing is... Um, when you say microbiome, I'm just going to bring everybody back. Every time Steph mentions microbiome, <laughs> substitute immune system. Just yes, bang. true. Swap it mm -hmm. in. Swap it out. Mm -hmm. So every time Steph or I says microbiome um, or bacteria in our guts or, uh, or probiotic, just think immune system. Just mm. like plant that into your head so that you, you go, oh, okay, cool, cool. It's, it, we're basically t saying the same thing. So where we'd improve the health of the microbiome, we're also improving your function of your immune system. So think about that too. Just that's mm -hmm. a contextual thing. Yeah, immune system, absolutely. So really important to keep making that link. Um, what, what else? I love resistant starch. I love legumes for the right people. Um, yep. Yeah, I think... That's a good point. That's a good point you make there, the right people. Mm. And there's a greater understanding these days, Steph, to, you know, and particularly in the new medicine, like the new healthcare, which is, you know, what you and I have been part of. I've been part of the new stuff for 25 years. It feels mm. so old to me, but it is only new now. Um, so, but th there's, you know, a, a great enthusiasm. Um, I've actually lost 
my train of thought. Where was I going? <laughs> Where, <laughs> what did you say before? Yeah, not everyone suits leggings. Oh yes, <laughs> that's right. So we're oh my gosh, uh, that's that's I just had a seniors moment as I'm approaching you know old age. Um, I so we're saying that bio individuality is really important. So just because you watched a movie that tells you to eat in a particular way doesn't mean that's the way you've got to eat. And again, selecting foods based on, you know, what you're designed to be eating is really important. And that's why, you know, practitioners can guide you in that direction. So again, another little plug for Steph, contact Steph via the natural nutritionist so that you can actually um, be guided uh, appropriately to the right sort of food uh, because the right sort of food for you could be the different, could be different to what you think it might have been. Uh, and, and that goes down that line of ancestral eating, which I really love the whole concept of ancestral eating, Steph. Yeah, I'm with you. And that's why it's usually an optional food, at least initially, because obviously a lot of people are doing microbiome or immune testing um, out of curiosity. So that's one thing. But there are many others yeah. that are doing it because they've got some obvious symptoms. And so... Yeah. I've, I wouldn't be giving anyone a food that's going to give them, you know, wor a worsening of their symptoms or um, anything that they find quite triggering at the moment. But you can definitely put it in your longer-term plan to come back and test these foods down the track when your microbiome, when your immune system is more robust. So yeah. we just need to be mindful of that because a lot of people walk around with signs on their forehead that says, you know, I never eat onions or I'm low FODMAP forever <laughs> and I have a problem with that. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Yeah. Mm. It's supposed to be temporary. Like the whole yeah. FODMAP thing is meant to be temporary. And when you go back to Sue Shepard's early work in it, um, and I'm going to credit Sue because, <laughs> you know, the big guys stole it from her, let's be honest about it. Um, it's really Sue Shepard's work. She did it in her PhD and just happens to be that she doesn't own it, um, but she's the one that founded it. So Sue, uh, when she, you know, first found it, realised that this was an issue and that it could be corrected. And this is really important to understand that yeah. um, the restriction of FODMAPs for a period of time is good to bring things under control, but then the reintroduction of these FODMAPs is also really important and that's why there's a program designed for it. So, you know, you do this under guidance. It's not something that you just kind of go, oh, yeah, I'm FODMAP free and you do that forever. That's not the way it's meant to be. You're meant to be able to bring these things back in. So, and it's done with, you know, someone who's trained to help you with that, like Steph. <laughs> but, yes, using that as a... A sign that maybe there is an interruption in the in the microbiome with the immune system, but then not forgetting that you know you really don't want to be eliminating whole foods long term. A little bit of a of a side note, but let's go back to what else we could talk uh, or what we can do for our immune system. So you were talking about probiotics before Demo. So what role do they yeah. play in uh, what role do they play in terms of regulating the immune system? Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Steph. Um, there's one other thing just before we go to the, if you don't mind, I was just going to say, these are things that we found in your food anyway, but things like vitamin D and zinc, uh, as well as your vitamin C, you know, are also really, really important. And we can come back to the herbs. We'll maybe cycle back to some herbs later on about that, you know, to help boost your immune system and different parts of your immune system too, because different herbs do different things. So maybe we can go back to that. Uh, but I love probiotics, Steph, and I think you know that I love probiotics so much. And our great friend, Carl, broccoli he loves probiotics too and and for me probiotics are the future they are kind of these are the, the little guys that we carry around in such vast numbers that they outnumber our human cells um, by 
I don't know, is it 100 to 1 or something like that? It's like there's so many more bacteria in our body. Now, probiotics are, are bacterial species that we can take, we can ingest, and then they will signal different functions within the gastrointestinal system. Now, most probiotics, when they get through the stomach and the gastrointestinal tract, uh, they don't exist when they get through to the rectum, to the anus. So as, they, as we manufacture a poo, that poo doesn't generally uh, contain the strains of bacteria that we took orally. In other words, more often than not, they die uh, on the way through. Now, you might think, well, then that means that they don't do anything. Well, that's also not the, the case because these bacteria uh, behave in a particular way by signaling the epithelial layer of the mucous membrane um, or other bacteria um, or yeast or parasites or whatever else in the gastrointestinal tract to do certain things. So, for example, if we take the case of lactobacillus rhamnosus LGG, which is one of the strains I mentioned earlier on, that particular strain will go into the body and it will signal the immune system and it will uh, help to regulate an immediate um, immune response that, that's governed by mast cells, but, but it also assists in natural killer cell um, modification as well. So our other white blood cells that manage bacterial infection and other um, you know, um, uh, oh my gosh, what a bad day. Maybe it's time for me to eat some food today. Um, what are they? Uh, antibody responses. So when we have antigens presenting, so when we've got our antigens being presented in our body, LGG helps to modify the immediate response so it's more appropriate. And I think that's also really important to keep in mind. So that's one bacteria um, that's, that's been shown to signal appropriately, but you don't find it in the stool. I'm going to take a drink of water, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> that's all good. Yeah, I think, again, that's what we need to understand. So really looking at, yeah, learning more about probiotics I think is essential, but our expectations for whether they're, you know, commensal strains or transient strains and then what we can do to make sure that we're taking what we, what we need to be you know, whether it is prescribed or whether we're doing it at that therapeutic levels or whether we do it via food or beverages. Yeah. I'm back. I'm back. Yeah, I just had that water and that was really helpful. <laughs> um, that's so weird. So this doesn't normally happen. Um, you're right. And it's better to get it through food in the long term, but in the short term when things aren't really good, then a probiotic's really important. And, and choosing a probiotic that is therapeutic, in other words, has a function, is uh, is really important as well. So somebody asked me the other day, what's my thoughts on a shelf-stable, broad-spectrum probiotic? And I said, oh, yeah, that, that could be fine. And they said, oh, are they, are they you know, the, the values of bacteria going to be, you know, are they going to be good? And I said, well, the label claim is what you've got to be mindful of. So if it says that it's going to have 2 billion microorganisms or CFUs at expiry, then that's how much it has to have here in Australia. Now, if you listen to this podcast in the US, you'll have different rules. If you listen to this podcast in the UK, different rules. Canada, different rules. New Zealand and Australia are the same rules. So if it says 2 billion or 20 billion or 25 billion or 50 billion per capsule um, at expiry, then that's what it has to have at expiry. Now, a shelf-stable probiotic will still have those bacteria. It may have slightly more and then it dies off to, to that, that level um, at expiry or um, it, it may 
it, well, that's basically how it's going to work. But you don't get a, a bacteria that goes to sleep and then only becomes active in the gut. They're always going to be awake. My preference is to use um, refrigerated probiotics. That's uh, that's my preference. Um, I don't know why. Maybe I'm just you know set in my ways, but I prefer to use um, that sort of uh, you know bacteria. Now, the strain specificity is really important, um, and Steph and I both have access to bacteria that bring about functional change in the body. And so to, to that extent, you know, we can use bacteria to help with say irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease or um, allergies and sensitivities like hay fever and foods intolerances and that sort of stuff. Uh, we can also use bacteria to boost your immune system and your natural killer cell response. And, uh, and so we can use those sorts of uh, bacteria and they're called probiotics, but you can also get those bacteria um, in, a, in your maintenance phase in different foods. And I think that's really important as well. And this is going to come from your fermented foods. Uh, so, that, you know, you might find some in some kombucha, you might find some in some kefir, you might find some in um, your sauerkraut and your kimchi. These here are important uh, fermented foods that you can actually put into your diet to assist you. Uh, but so, also some of the bacteria uh, that you have existing in your body will signal other bacteria to proliferate if the food is good. So if you're putting the right foods in, they will also grow um, as a result of the signals from other bacteria in your body. So um, probiotics are really important, but the food that fuels the bacteria is equally as important. Mm, yeah, I love it. I love it. So do you want to go back to zinc, vitamin D, herbs? Because I think there's a lot more that we can be doing. Yeah, there really is, isn't there? So zinc's an important mineral and uh, and we can get zinc through our food, but the reality is, is that the foods that contain zinc um, aren't really that plentiful and our soils in Australia aren't that rich in zinc. Now, it's interesting because plants will manufacture, they make vitamins. They don't absorb vitamins from the earth. They make vitamins and they also stimulate our body to make vitamins. So the only vitamin that we can't make is vitamin C. Everything else we can pretty much make when it comes to water-soluble vitamins. So B vitamins, um, you know, as a, as a classic example, we make most of our B vitamins, you know, with our microbiome, our bacteria. But minerals our body doesn't make and we can't form minerals. So we have to get minerals from our soil and from our diet. So it's really important that we eat foods that are rich in certain minerals. And in this case, when we're talking about zinc, uh, zinc's found in a number of different foods. So sunflower seeds or pepitas are really rich in zinc. Um, and so are oysters. Um, actually, I've got to tell you this story. The other day, somebody, Steph, told me um, that they were told to take oysters on a daily basis. Uh, because oysters, you know, had a therapeutic effect on the body, which I, I, I've got to look up and I don't want to, you know, talk too much about it on this particular podcast because I haven't researched it yet, but they were actually prescribed by their doctor to eat one oyster per day. Interesting. Like, I don't know. I was like, I was quite excited by that, but I, I, I will come back to you with why that is the case. Let's not reveal it on this podcast. But that, <laughs> stay tuned. But oysters, yeah, stay tuned. Come back to the next episode of the Real Food Real, and you, you might hear that. Uh, with with regards to zinc access, uh, you'll get it through uh, lots of different foods, but those two foods are very high sources of zinc. Now, if you need to supplement with zinc then it's important to take zinc um, moderately to start with because it can cause a violent evacuation um, of food 
uh, if you've got enough zinc in your body. So you may have enough zinc in your body, but a little top off of zinc to assist your immune system's activity uh, is not a bad thing to do. Uh, but the problem is, is that if you have enough zinc in your body and then you take some more zinc and it's just slightly too much, you will vomit or at least feel nauseous. Mm. So it's good to you know be careful of how much zinc you, you do take. So I'd recommend that you start with five milligrams and maybe build yourself up from there to a nausea point. Uh, did you do you do anything different in that regard, Steph? Um, yeah, a lot of it is going to be based on blood tests, demo for zinc, because um, you know obviously it is quite easy to test. I'm not telling anyone to go and get their blood test right now because we don't want to overwhelm the medical system. But I guess normally I'd be looking at a blood test result and working out um, what a client needs. But yes, certainly prescribing it with food to avoid um, nausea and and um, not jumping in the deep end is always a good idea. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, don't jump in the deep end. It's not good because uh, you will chuck up and it's always at the worst time. And there's always carrots. I don't know. We'll talk about that in another episode too, I reckon. Uh, That'll be, be worth talking about, Steph. The other thing um, that we spoke about or that I dropped before was vitamin D. Mm. Now, I was watching uh, an American program the other day and as the throwaway line, this doctor on the American program said, now, I want you to take 10,000 international units of vitamin D um, and that will help. And I was like, what? Did I just hear a, a, like a medical doctor um, on television say take 10,000 IUs of vitamin D? I was like, wow, far out. That's incredible. Because here in Australia, um, our vitamin D is limited to 1,000 international units per day um, in terms of our recommended daily allowance. And so that's the reason why the dosages that you can get are so low in Australia is because our RDA is considered to be low. And there's also the assumption that because we have some we can manufacture lots of vitamin D. But then the flip side of that is that we're told to stay inside and slip, slop, slap if we mm. go outside. So we actually block our manufacture of vitamin D. So we need to get it from our diet. So oily fish, um, cod, um, salmon might have some. I don't know. I think it's just really just cod and cod liver. I think and halibut and anchovies, I think, are the ones that kind of provide vitamin D. Are you aware of anything else there that provides vitamin D? A tiny amount in egg yolks, but it's not that easy to obtain in high amounts from the diet because it's a sun vitamin, obviously, or a hormone rather. Yeah. Mm. Yes. And hormone, yeah, that's right, vitamin analog hormone. And so um, I would take a supplement of vitamin D and I do. I've got a little bottle of vitamin D that I keep in my drawer at work. And when I start my shift, I squirt a couple of little drops under my hand and just lick it off. Oh, then I wash my hand because of COVID and, uh, and then I get going and just, you know, start the day. But I have my vitamin D then. So it's, you know, a regular maintenance dose of vitamin D for me. Um, I take just to maintain, you know, a, an appropriate immune response. And I think that's a really good thing to do. Do you uh, prescribe much vitamin D, Steph? A lot and especially a lot now. Like the research around COVID-19 severity is significant. So in Australia, we use the nanomole per litre units and less than 50, so less than 50 nanomole per litre is showing about um, like a 50% increased risk of COVID-19, right? And so then your risk significantly decreases when you get like to 75. And of course, we, we tend to recommend someone's goal for their vitamin D is around 100 to 150 nanomole per litre. And that's where you have, you know, th- this absolute 
smallest risk of COVID-19. Now, obviously, it's multifactorial and there will always be other comorbidities that need to be factored in. But right now, because, yes, it is a sunshine hormone or vitamin and we're indoors, and then, you know, two, at least in Australia, we're moving into winter where that's going to be even more challenging, not to mention how social isolation is impacting that further. So I think it's important to have this conversation because it's not being had like the vitamin C conversation is. You know, everywhere in Australia basically sold out of vitamin C the moment everyone found out that it was beneficial to COVID-19. And so that was great because it is proving to be really important, especially for the cytokine storm and, and what's going on in the sort of second half of the disease progression. But yep. we're not talking about vitamin D enough and we're moving into winter and where I live, it's, it's, ne- it's nearly dark all day now. It's, it's very wintry. And while that might change, yep. not many people are getting outdoors, especially because it's that window of between, you know, 10 and 3 that, that gets for 10 a.m. till 3 p.m. That, that gets narrower and narrower as we get into winter. So then you have like this small window of time to go outside at midday. <laughs> And, you know, no one's doing that on a regular basis with their arms out and their legs out. We're covered up. Um, more than that. More than that. You've got to get everything out. Everything out. Got to be nakies. Everything and no out. one's doing that. Be, so. yeah, right. mm. No, it's too cold. Mm. It's too cold for us down here, us Mexicans, but up north. I was, you know, I was looking, I was chatting with a friend of mine, Ravi, uh, today on the phone, and we did a FaceTime, and we FaceTimed Western Australia, Sydney, and Melbourne, and Melbourne had stinking weather. Western Australia was beautiful. And Sydney was just blue skies, no clouds. I'll tell you what, Steph, I often question why we live in Melbourne. <laughs> Seriously, can't play golf and we've got bad weather. It's just something's not right. Mm. Anyway, we're moving on from that, hey? Um, yeah, even in Queensland, so, they're slip-flop snapping. So that's the message. I grew up in yeah. Queensland and, of course, we need to be mindful of getting burnt and skin, scan- skin cancer. But having too much coverage will then impact your vitamin D levels as well. So it kind of goes one way or the other depending on what side of the equator you live on, right? Yeah, so true. That's exactly right. And as we go into winter, it's, as you said, it's so much more difficult to manufacture vitamin D and it's not really that comfortable. You know, as it gets colder, you want to put more clothes on, not take mm. clothes off. So, um, yeah, so you can get your vitamin D levels checked, but it's way easier at the moment to get a COVID-19 check than a vitamin D check. Uh, so Medicare. you're better off just taking some. <laughs> <laughs> just go and take some. 10,000 international um, units, if we can just go back to that point, I do think that's too much, seeing as it's a fat-soluble vitamin. And at the moment, we, you know, when the research looks like we don't want a vitamin D level above about 200, people will say otherwise. And, you know, I will be open to changing my mind when the clinical research shows us otherwise. But I do think it's a little bit too much to be on TV telling everyone to take 10,000 international units. I know, I know. I, I think the same, um, and I'm glad you pulled me up on that. But the reason why I got excited about that is because it was a throwaway line, oh, you just take 10,000 test units. And for me, that was like, wow, mind blow, that we're now getting GPs prescribing, um, you know, what would be seen to be a large amount of, or medical professionals prescribing what would be a large amount of vitamin D in our, you know, terms and and both i'm not afraid to mega dose for most things so so mm. uh, it was good but i'm glad you pulled me up on that and just um reframe that for everybody as well with herbs steph 
there's a number of different herbs that can um, affect the immune system and sometimes you take herbs because you've got, you're having an immune challenge and you need a bit of extra stimulation or a bit of extra support. Sometimes you take herbs um, because you're trying to prevent um, something happening. Um, and in this case, because you know we're talking COVID and in other words, we're talking viruses, it's important to have an appropriate natural killer cell response. And so for me, I've been recommending a number of different herbs. Olive leaf extract is a great um, extract of a plant to use, like a, a fruit to use um, for our body to boost our white blood cells um, and help prevent viral load or viral infection. And then the other thing uh, that I like to recommend is andrographis. I really like that herb. It works really, really well to boost natural killer cell function. Um, and, and those two herbs I use a lot of. Um, and, and I also use mushrooms. So medicinal mushrooms, I think, have been shown to be hugely effective, like reishi, shiitake, uh, karataki, coriolis, uh, cordyceps. And so there's, there's a few different types of, uh, of mushrooms that I would use in that re regard. Um, is there anything else that you would use from a herbal perspective? Uh, yeah, no, they're my top. I love a bit of astragalus for sure. Mm. Um, and I'm probably using, yeah, reishi and shiitake more commonly, but it really depends on the, on the client <laughs> because if it, let's say you're taking C, D, zinc and astragalus and some <laughs> mushrooms, like, yeah, it's going to get really expensive and perhaps not that practical. So, um, yeah, whilst nice. there are lots of things that you can take, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to take all of them. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right. So basically what we're saying is there's heaps of different things that you can do to improve your immune system. But the primary thing to focus on is the health of your gut. Make sure that you're eating a really healthy diet because um, the diet is the foundation. That's, your, that's what you want to build upon. Get your gut nice and healthy. Decrease the amount of symptoms that you're showing and that you're experiencing. Keep your weight appropriate. Be strong, be fit, move lots, drink lots of water, and then you might take some supplements to actually improve things. But, you know, don't use supplements as your um, stopgap. It's meant to be something that supplements a healthy lifestyle, a healthy diet. Uh, mm. it's, not, it's not the be all and end all. Don't make supplements your food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely awesome. Thank you so much, Damo. Was there anything else you wanted to add to this, the discussion today? No, I think that's pretty good. I think, you know, I think it's just good for people just to keep an open mind around the gastrointestinal system being the source of the bulk of their immune system or at least the bulk of their lymphatic system. And, um, you know, just, just think about what goes in your mouth and, uh, and be aware of, of how that affects your body. Uh, I think that's really important. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Taking control back over your health and, and, yeah, focusing on what you can control will make all the difference right now. So thank you so much for joining us today, Damo. It was so great to have you on the show. It's so great to be back and joining you again. Thanks, Steph. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. 
check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash The Wellness Couch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.